Well, now before we read, <clears throat> I hope I'm not taking too much upon myself if I offer on behalf of all the visitors here a very, very sincere thank you to the Saints at Midland Park. Uh, I think that the way in which the practical arrangements have been made, to think that this uh, new venue, they didn't have any practice for it, um, it's just all worked. We trace that back to God's goodness, but I don't think any of us will understand just how much work these dear saints have put in. And so, may I please, I hope I'm not doing what I shouldn't, but I just feel maybe on behalf of the visitors it would be good to say, thank you, dear brethren and sisters. Thank you. Without those practicalities, a conference doesn't work. And I know that most have put in a tremendous lot of work since a long time ago, and especially through the weekend. Thank you very much indeed. I'd like to read with you from Hebrews, please, in chapter 5. Hebrews in chapter 5. We'll break in at verse number 4 of this chapter, Hebrews 5 and verse 4. And it says, And no man taketh this honor that is, the honor of being a high priest. No man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And we do look to the Lord for his help and blessing upon this reading from his own good word. I enjoyed the thoughts of our dear brother Shad this morning when he took us to that tremendous and very instructive verse and its surroundings in Genesis chapter 14. And I would commend it as a study to those younger believers who are beginning to seriously explore their Bibles now. The brethren used to teach us that there was a thing that they like to call the law of first mention. That is, when a subject in the Bible is spoken of for the first time, its setting and its context normally gives us a good guide as to the way in which that subject is going to be developed through the Scriptures. To give an example, you know, if I were just to say to you, well, the Bible speaks a lot about love, so how would you define love in its epitome? What would, what would be the greatest example of love that you can think of? 
And probably, from a human point of view, we might say, well, surely the love of a mother for her child. Uh, And stories abound, real accounts abound, of tremendous sacrifice made by, by women whose children are in peril. And yet, interestingly, the first time we read of love in our Bibles is not to do with the love of a mother for her child. But in Genesis chapter 22, God says to Abraham, Take now thy son, thine only, whom thou lovest. Get thee unto a place that I will tell thee of, and so forth. And so the great Moriah scene was going to take place, so figurative of the death of Christ. You come to your New Testament, and the first mention, it's been quoted in prayer already today, whether in Matthew or Mark or Luke, the first mention of love. This, or thou, art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. You see how the emphasis in these first mentions of love is upon the love of a father for his son. Uniquely, John then, of course, the first mention in his lovely gospel is for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So you can see that that's how this so-called law of first mention would tend to operate. And as Shad pointed out to us uh, in the ministry this morning, uh, Genesis 14 and 18 is tremendously important because it contains not one, but five important subjects, all mentioned for the first time in the Bible. And Melchizedek, of whom we have read in Hebrews 5, it's the first mention of Melchizedek in Scripture. And he was king of Salem. Now Salem would one day become Jerusalem, a very important subject, the city of our God, the city of the great king, Psalm 48. So it's the first mention of that city in the Bible. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, And as our brother rightly taught us, it's the first mention in Scripture of bread and wine. When bread is mentioned for the first time uh, in Genesis 4, it's associated with a curse. Genesis 3, I should say, it's associated with a curse. When wine is first mentioned, Genesis 9, it's associated with a curse. But the two together, always associated with blessing. He brought forth bread and wine, and he was a priest. It's the first mention of priesthood in our Bibles. That's a tremendous theme through Scripture, isn't it? And then that lovely, really a millennial title of God, the Most High God. It's used most in the book of Daniel. Those great figurative passages, men like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, a picture of that faithful remnant of Israel in a day to come, going through the fierce fires of affliction, Not three men, but four. And the divine title used in that context is that of the Most High God. You put the five important subjects all together, and you have a lovely statement early on in God's dealings with Abraham of a forthcoming kingdom where the one who will reign will be both a priest and a king. That will be characterized by righteousness and peace. And that kingdom, that millennial reign of our Lord Jesus, is still future but you have it beautifully encapsulated in Genesis 14, 18. So it's the first mention there of Melchizedek, the man of whom we have read. And I want to draw your attention this afternoon for a little while as we think of something of the person and work of Christ. I, I want just to direct your thoughts, really, 
to these two little expressions. Verse number 6 of Hebrews 5. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 10. Called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So the one in verse 6 is a priest, and in verse 10 he's a high priest. See that? So now why is the priest a high priest? Because you know enough about the teaching of the tabernacle and the temple to know that in those three divisions of the house of God in that form, there was the outer court, Then there was the sanctuary, the holy place, and and the holy place was the area in which the priestly men ministered to God. But then there was a veil, and the veil divided between the holy place and the holiest of all. Now, no priest could go into there. So the, the, the sphere of operations of the priest was confined to the sanctuary. It was confined to the holy place. And only on one day in the year, the Day of Atonement, would the high priest go beyond that veil and go into the holiest of all, there to make presentation in the very presence of God. But the Lord Jesus, in figure, because Melchizedek is without question a figure of Christ, and that comes out most explicitly in chapter 7 of this lovely epistle. Melchizedek is spoken of, or the Lord Jesus is spoken of, as a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Well, the answer, I think, is fairly simple. But we want to see the teaching of the verses that lie between. In verse number 6, he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek because he stands unique. There isn't another one. He's all alone. There is only one man, in verse 6, who is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. But by the time we come to verse number 10, he's a high priest. Why? Because he's now head over a whole family of priests just like him. If you've only one priest, then he doesn't have a high priest over him. He stands unique. But if you have a whole family of priests, you have a high priest over them. See that? So that the priest of verse 6, who's all alone, becomes a high priest in verse 10, head over a whole family. You believe, as I do, in the principle, very precious principle, of the priesthood of all believers. That is, we do not have some kind of special group who officiate in divine things amongst us. Every believer, male or female, old or young, the moment that your faith is settled in Christ and you're born again of the Spirit of God, the very moment you're saved, you are born into a priestly family. I'm looking at priests. You have no distinctive garments outwardly. We have no physical altar at which we officiate. The house of God today is the church. 
It's a spiritual house. Read about it in Ephesians chapter 2. And every local assembly that's represented here bears the character of that. So, for example, when Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Now these things write I unto you, hoping to come unto you shortly, but if I tarry, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in house of God, which is church of the living God, pillar and ground of the truth. That local assembly of which you are a part bears character of the house of God. So you're a priest. Of what order? You say, what do you mean? Well, of what family? Because, you see, when it comes to priesthood in the Bible, well, there were many false priests, of course. You remember those, those prophets of Baal and the priests of the false gods who would cut themselves with knives and all this kind of thing. We leave those, all those aside. As far as God's purpose is concerned, there's only two orders of priesthood. There's only two families of priests in the Bible. One was headed by Aaron and one by Melchizedek. So then, of which priesthood are we members? Well, clearly not of Aaron. Our priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek. So there was a man on earth who, though he did not function as a priest after the order of Aaron, because he was not of that tribe of Levi, there was a man on earth whose whole ministry was priestly and beautiful, and it was after the order of Melchizedek. If you have any doubt, you read Luke's Gospel. You see the priestly character of the Lord Jesus in the days of his flesh beautifully brought out in that gospel. It's not coincidental, is it, that you find him at the beginning of that gospel wrapped in, in linen. She took that little babe and she wrapped it in swaddling bands. He was wrapped in linen. That's a priestly garment. He was wrapped in linen at the beginning of his life. And at the close of Luke's gospel, tender hands took that shattered body from the cross and they wrapped him in linen. And so that man who was figuratively clothed in linen from the beginning to the end of Luke's gospel, the whole of his ministry was priestly. He read in Luke's gospel, didn't he, from Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he hath anointed me. Well, now, there were three offices to which a man could be anointed. That of the prophet, that of the priest, that of the king. It's not a prophetic ministry, Mark deals with that. Mark deals with the perfect servant of Jehovah. Not anointed to kingly office, Matthew deals with that. Priestly office. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, and so on. And, and he reads through those lovely verses of Isaiah 61. And in complete keeping with the purpose from which he had come, when he had read the words, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, he then closed the book, gave it again to the minister, sat down, and said to the people, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. He didn't go on to read what Isaiah had written immediately afterward, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. That day had not come. He'd come to preach. And as you read through Luke's Gospel, you find that each of those elements that he's quoted from Isaiah 61, 
he fulfills in his ministry as recorded by Luke. It's a lovely study. It's not the subject this afternoon, so we must move on quickly. But, but for example, you just look at Luke chapter 7 and 8. Those two chapters are awash with tears. But he came to heal the brokenhearted. Isaiah 61 says. That was a priestly ministry. Came to heal the brokenhearted and, and follow the footsteps of the Savior through Luke 7 and 8. Just listen to his words. Look at the lovely way that that man dealt with each individual and healed those who were brokenhearted. Oh, he's a priest, all right. He wasn't a priest after the order of Aaron. And he didn't officiate in the temple. A priest after the order of Melchizedek. He didn't glorify himself in that office. That is, he didn't appoint himself to that office. Only God can make those appointments. And it's of particular interest, you see, to those who are reading these words for the first time. It's a letter. It's an epistle. It's written to Hebrews. And I judge particularly, when you're studying this epistle, it's good to keep in, your, in the background of your mind that in Acts chapter 6, those earliest days of the church, in Acts chapter 6, it says that there was a great company of priests who were obedient to the faith. That was wonderful, wasn't it? That a great company out of that Judaistic priesthood, the family of Aaron, a great company of those priests were obedient to the faith. God saved them. But you know, the very, the very moment that those dear priestly men who enjoyed status and position, they were revered. These were not just sons of Levi, but they were of the Aaronic order. These were priestly men. And however much the priesthood had become corrupted, their office still was revered. And in one stroke, they lost it. And they lost everything. They lost family, they lost friends, they lost status, they lost income, they lost everything because they confessed that Jesus was the Christ. And they comforted one another. They suffered persecution together. They hadn't yet resisted unto blood, the writer tells them. But it was tough. It was really tough. And you know what made it worse for them? They really believed that, that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ of God. Their faith was in him. And they believed that, that his work at Calvary had signaled an end to the old covenant, an end to the old system of things. God was finished with it. He dealt with it judicially at Calvary. But what made it worse for them was that they could look upon the temple in Jerusalem. And the smoke was still rising from the altar. The morning and the evening sacrifices were still being made. And the priests were still serving in their various orders. And everything was going on in that temple like, like Christ had never been there at all. 
And many in that great company of priests who've been obedient to the faith were looking at one another and saying, did we make a desperate mistake here? Did we get this all wrong? Some of them were saying, do you know, I can't take much more of this. I'm going to go back into it. I'll go and I'll just put my hands up and say, look, I'm sorry, I made a desperate mistake. I was wrong about the whole thing. Others were saying, well, look, look, surely can we not believe in Christ deep down secretly in our hearts, but just go back to our family occupation? And you know, the writer of this epistle deals very, very tenderly with these men. I think when you read the Hebrew epistle from that angle, you'll read it tenderly. Ah, you'll maybe weep over it. Because these were real people. They were our early brethren in Christ. And they were terribly confused as to the situation they were in. And systematically, systematically, the writer, guided by the Spirit, is going to show them the absolute supremacy of Christ in every respect. And principally, one of the things he's going to teach them is this. That that Aaronic priesthood of which you were a part, that into which you were born, that which was everything to you, he says, now remember this. It was only ever intended to be temporary. Just remember this, he says, that there was actually a priesthood that predated Aaron and his priesthood. It didn't all begin with him. Priestly ministry didn't begin with Aaron and his sons. Priestly ministry began with Melchizedek. And my brethren, though you have given up much, And though you are suffering much, understand this, that your faith in Christ has constituted you priests into a higher order of priesthood than that which you knew before. Hence all through the epistle. One of our dear brethren at home used to put it like this. He used to say, had it been left to me... I would have begun this epistle with a mandate that drove these men out of Judaism. But he said the Spirit of God wisely waited to the end of the epistle and he used a magnet to draw them out of it. Let us go forth unto him. The whole epistle magnifies Christ. The epistle gently but remorselessly drives them to this opinion, Christ and Christ alone. Can we not have him in our hearts and go back to that outward thing? No, he says, we have an altar. Chapter 13. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat that serve the tabernacle. See, the priest's food came from the sacrificial system. One of the things they were not allowed to feed upon was anything that died of itself. They were never allowed to feed upon anything that had been torn by beasts. But the writer directs the gaze of these dear men to Calvary. And he said there was a blessed man there and he was torn by beasts. You read Psalm 22 again. 
That blessed man, as he wrote the work of God in sacrifice at Calvary, was viciously torn by beasts. But ultimately, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He died of himself. And the writer says, those that serve the tabernacle have got no right to eat from the altar that we do. The law forbids them to do it. But he's the food of the priest today. We feed upon that blessed man who was torn of beasts. We feed upon that blessed man who died of himself. The two systems, says the writer, are utterly incompatible. You must let go. And you must go out unto Christ alone. So in chapter 5, he speaks about one who is constituted a priest after the order of Melchizedek by divine appointment. God has made him so. And the manhood of Christ is very much to the fore in this passage, we've read, who in the days of his flesh. His humanity is being emphasized. And that that office which he bears was sealed not only in his life and not only in his death, but it was sealed in his resurrection. Hence, we have the quotation in verse number 5, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. Quotation from Psalm 110. You'd read it again in Acts chapter 13 and verse 33, and in the Acts 13 passage, it is most distinctly and clearly and obviously in relation to the bodily resurrection out from among the dead of our Lord Jesus. Now, why is that important? It's important because this man has been appointed to this priestly office and ultimately to the headship of a completely new order of priests He has been appointed to it by virtue of who he is and by virtue of the life that he lived and the death that he died. The consequence of all those things being that God signaled his complete and total satisfaction with everything that this man is and had done. He signaled it by raising him bodily out from among the dead. This was the visible divine endorsement that everything Christ had professed to do and to be was true. And you know that the resurrection bodily out from among the dead of the Lord Jesus is fundamental to our faith and our salvation. Says Paul to the Corinthians, if Christ be not raised, then our faith is vain. Our preaching's vain. In fact, we're constituted liars because we've preached to you that Christ is risen from the dead. You see how fundamental it is. So the context now is a blessed man who was here, who has been raised from the dead, and the Father says, Thou art my son this day, this day of resurrection, have I begotten thee, in brackets, again from the dead. He'd gone into death, now he's been begotten again from among the dead ones. There was never a beginning to the existence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, there was a beginning to his humanity. And in a wonderful way that we cannot understand, nor would we delve into, 
in a wonderful way, the Spirit of God brought about conception in the womb of that Hebrew virgin. He didn't implant an embryo into her. That's not what a body hast thou prepared me means. And let's have none of this false doctrine that the Lord didn't take any part of Mary. He's a real man. What was miraculous and divine was his conception. And having been conceived of the Spirit of God, that infant grew in the womb of his mother until the day came that Mary brought forth her firstborn son. There was a beginning to his humanity. There was never a beginning to the Son of God who was made flesh. There was never a beginning to his existence because he's co-equal with the Father. And the thought of his sonship is not that he is descended from the Father. My late father's been in heaven for 21 or 2 years now. I'm physically his descendant. He predated me. That's physical sonship. But spiritual sonship, sonship in scripture is always about the manifestation of character. That's why this epistle begins. God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us in son. He has expressed himself in Christ. And Christ is the fullest possible expression of what God is. He's God manifest in flesh. So anything and everything that you and I can ever know about the invisible God, we will find displayed in Christ. He's the Son. And by the same token, that wonderful title that he only ever used of himself, Son of Man. If Son of God means that he is God in all his fullness displayed, then Son of Man means that the Lord Jesus was the fullest display of everything God intended humanity to be. When I want to see God in his fullness, I look at Christ. When I want to see man as everything God intended man to be, I look at Christ. He's Son of God, Son of Man. This is my Son, said God. This day have I begotten thee. And he said in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this is never going to end. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications. Now you see, we have to kind of stretch our minds a little bit here. But if the primary readership was that company of priestly men, their minds are totally in the groove here. The moment they read of this offering up of prayers and supplications, immediately these men who are acquainted with the sanctuary, immediately these men's minds are fixed upon the brazen altar. Uh, sorry, the, 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 the altar of incense. Brazen altar was out in the outer court. There's an altar of incense in the sanctuary. Why? They had officiated there. And as they went in to light the lamps at even, so that special, unique, beautiful incense of Exodus chapter 30 had to be put upon the altar of incense. And you remember Psalm 141. The psalmist says, Let my prayers be set forth before thee as incense. 
So these priestly men, when they read this expression of him offering up prayers and supplications, they're thinking about the ministry of that altar of incense. That, that wonderful fragrance that was unique to the sanctuary of God. In fact, they were solemnly charged in Exodus 30, you must never ever compound anything like this for yourself. This is for God. This is unique. And yet, you imagine as those priestly men went into the sanctuary and quietly went about their service, the lampstand is here on the left, and they're going to trim the wicks, and they're going to replace the oil. And over here on the Sabbath, on the table of showbread, that bread they're going to replace with fresh loaves, and they're going to feed upon that which was on there. And then that altar of incense. And it's burning with a slow fire. The fire of that altar was the same fire as came from the brazen altar. Lovely suggestive study in itself. Those two altars are linked by, by the fire. But you know, as that altar burned, uh, as that incense burned very slowly, and those men quietly go about their priestly ministry, what was happening? Their clothing, their hair, their beards were all being permeated and infused with that lovely fragrance. So that when they came out of the sanctuary, when they passed through what's called the door of the tabernacle, a big heavy hanging, a bit like the veil, when they came out of that, back into the harsh sunlight, back into the noise of the outer court, back amongst the people. As one of those men moved amongst the people, heads would turn. Because in the wilderness, there was suddenly that precious breath of fragrance. And they would know from the fragrance that those men had been in the presence of God. Do you covet that as a priest? Wouldn't that be lovely if you and I, as priests before God today, in the imagery, in the typical teaching of this lovely passage, wouldn't it be wonderful if when you and I had spent time in the sanctuary, alone in the presence of God, wouldn't it be lovely if, like those disciples when we went out, men and women knew that we'd been with Jesus? Don't have to say anything. There'd just be something of the fragrance of heaven about us. It got into the warp and woof of our character so that men and women knew that we belonged to Christ. So that altar of incense is there, offering up prayer and supplication with strong crying and tears unto him, not who is able to save him away from death. That's not the thought but unto him who would deliver him out from death. So the Lord Jesus, this perfect man, went into death confident of this, that his God would deliver him out from death. And there is that strong crying and tears that come from all his suffering and experience. And he cried unto the one who was able to deliver him out from death. And he was heard in that he feared. 
Or as your margin would suggest, if you have a King James Version, for his piety. And if you're anything like myself, you read that and you think, well, that doesn't help me at all. But you see, the lovely thought is this. Here was a man in the depths of his extremity. And when he cried with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him out of death, he was heard because there wasn't a cloud between them. There was nothing that blocked the channel of communication. There was nothing that clouded the fellowship. That happens with you and me, doesn't it? Remember how we read in Daniel 9 yesterday that Daniel directed his face toward the Lord in prayer to seek him. Daniel's really telling us, and Daniel was a great man of God, but Daniel's saying, you know, when I set myself to prayer, it took a while, as it were, before I broke through. Do you find that? Do you find that? Do you find you have to persevere in prayer until, as it were, you break through and you feel that you really are in touch with God? This blessed man never knew that. Never knew that. Unsullied, unbroken fellowship and communion with his God, a man and God in absolute vital accord. But why the extremity of these strong crying and tears? Because this man knows that that link is going to be broken. This man knows that necessarily, as he's going to make propitiation for the sins of the people, as mentioned in chapter 2, he knows this, that because he's going to be made sin, then that link between man and God is going to be severed. He's going to be left totally, utterly, absolutely desolate. Do these men reading this epistle feel like they've been abandoned? How much more this blessed man after the order of Melchizedek, the only man who's ever known what it is to be forsaken of his God, strong crying and tears. He was heard because there was nothing, nothing in between. And though he were a son, yet he accustomed himself to obedience in the things that he suffered. So as a son, he'd authority. As a son, he was the one who could direct things. But he took the form of a servant. The son has become a servant. And he has accustomed himself to obedience. He didn't have to learn obedience. He was ever obedient. His will was the will of the Father. But though a son, yet accustomed he himself to obedience, he took upon him the form of a servant. And he did so in the things which he suffered. And says verse 9, and I'm hastening on because I'm aware of time. I don't want to steal from my brethren. Verse 9 says, being made perfect. There's another problem, isn't it? You say, well, wasn't he always perfect? Yes, he was. But the word perfect here is the thought of complete. It's not that there was anything imperfect about the Lord Jesus, but understand this, that in his sufferings, when he was here, whether his sufferings in the wilderness, those sufferings in which he was left alone in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights along with the wild beasts, 
Incidentally, as has been well remarked before, when the Lord Jesus came out of the wilderness, after 40 days and 40 nights with the wild beasts, there wasn't the mark of a tooth or a claw upon him. But when he'd been in the presence of men for just a few hours, he was barely recognizable as a man. Oh, how depraved man is. Those sufferings were not just so that the work of God might be done. I do believe personally, I won't squabble with anybody who thinks otherwise, I don't believe personally that his sufferings at the hands of men had any part to play in the expiation of sin. It was his sufferings at the hand of God that did that. But what his sufferings at the hands of men did, they fitted him for his present office as high priest. Because we haven't got a high priest, says chapter 4, who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. But one who was tested in all points like as we sin apart. We haven't got a high priest who's remote from the people and doesn't know what the people are going through. Moses couldn't be high priest over the people. He hadn't known the lash of the taskmaster. He hadn't, built, he hadn't been making bricks. He'd been in Pharaoh's palace. He couldn't be the high priest. Ah, but now says the writer to these dear men. He says, listen, you've got a high priest who's experienced every exigency of life that you can go through yourself. And thank God that's true of you and me as well. Because he has suffered in body, soul, and spirit. We can't be tested in any other way. Those are the three ways in which we can know body, uh, uh, through, uh, we can know testing and trial. Either body, soul, or spirit. Physical, moral, or spiritual. And the Lord has known all of those things. We've got a high priest who knows exactly how you feel today. And that's, that's his completing, that's his perfection in verse number 9. So that he has become now the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Not salvation of the soul alone. Now, yes, he's become the author of the salvation of our souls, and we bless God for that. He did that through his sacrificial death. But in his sufferings, as a man in the days of his flesh, in all his human experience, he has become equipped to be a faithful and merciful high priest. So that he's not only able to save, he's able to keep. And he does, doesn't he? We don't have some remote, austere, divine presence, unaware of the particular needs of his people for whom he's bled. My brother, my sister, I'm looking at a company like this, I'm sure that behind, behind the facade there's many a heart perhaps today that's sore and weary, many a heart perhaps that's breaking. Lift your eyes heavenward. There's a man up there, and he's not only a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's become a high priest. He's become a high priest because in the work that he's done, 
He's fitted a multitude more to be priests just like him. You, me, we're all linked with him. And of course, linked with him in priesthood means that we have responsibility toward God. Had there been time, we could have gone back to Genesis 14, because that's the first mention of priesthood. And Chad pointed it out to us. And we read there how that the, the work of Melchizedek as a priest was, first of all, to bless Abraham in the name of God. But he also blessed God in the name of Abraham. It's a mediatorial work, you see. It's a, it's a Priesthood is something which has a function Godward, and it has a function manward. So he blessed Abraham in the name of God, and he blessed God in the name of Abraham. And Peter takes up the subject of your priesthood and mine in, in the second chapter of his first epistle. And he says, you have a holy priesthood. That's things pertaining to God. But he says, you're part of a royal priesthood. That's in things pertaining to man. As holy priests, we offer up sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. As royal priests, we display the virtues of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you feel like a priest? (laughs) You don't look like a priest. Well, that's simply because we don't have the outward garments of an old priesthood that's disappeared. We're part of a a never-ending priesthood. And the one who is the high priest is the captain of our salvation. The one who is our high priest, who can genuinely sympathize with all the needs of his people, is that blessed man who gave his life for you and me at Calvary. My dear brother, my dear sister, in whatever way you're hurting today, ways oftentimes in which you know your brethren and sisters wouldn't rightly understand, take it to the Lord. Really, take it to him. He knows. He's the only one who knows. And he's the only one who truly can do anything about it. He was once a priest unique. He's now a high priest over a whole family. And that by means of his sufferings and his death and his resurrection. May God bless his word.